You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the ups and downs of David's life. We're calling Hills and Valleys. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. Well, if I were to ask you how many of you enjoy waiting, I would bet you that that would be a very small number of us. Nobody says, I can't wait to go to Disney World and stand in lines. That's just not part of what we enjoy. And so when it comes to waiting, we recognize that nothing seems to happen fast enough for us, right? We always are trying to speed things up because we're ready really to get going with whatever it is we're trying to do. In his book, Uh, called The Psychology of Waiting Lines, David Meister talks about the fact that when we deal with waiting, it's really not even how long we have to wait, it's our perception of how long we have to wait. What are we viewing that time as is what we're having to do while we wait to get to whatever it is we want to really do and what our focus is. And so he highlights several things of what the problem could be. And so he talks about the fact that unoccupied time while we're waiting is not as good as occupied time. If I can give my mind something to do to process to engage while I wait, then that typically is a better wait for me. If you think about an amusement park, if you think maybe about Disney, if you've ever had the chance to go to Disney, they make the waiting line part of the experience. So they decorate it, they put walls, you can read plaques, you can do all these things. So they're trying to occupy your time when you get there. He also highlights the fact that generally you're ready to get started. Nobody gets excited about going to wait and think, I I really want to go to do this ride right now. But what really would make it great would be if I could wait about an hour before I do it, right? Nobody wants to do that. You get there and you're ready to be started on something. And then he highlights a third one. And that third one that he highlights is this idea that said uncertain times cause a longer experience of waiting than if you know how long you're waiting for. Think with me. If you know what you're getting in in line for and say, I know that this line's going to be 30 minutes, the moment you hit 31 minutes, think about it. If you've gone to a restaurant and they said the wait time for a table is 15 minutes, minute 16, you're like, hey, what's up? It's time. It's been 16 minutes. Well, wait lines are no different. Think about amusement parks. They do the same thing, only they add time to it. The ride's going to be 100 minutes for you to get to it. Well, guess what? You, only, you get in at 80 minutes, and you're like, man, that's the fastest 100 minutes of my life. It wasn't 100 minutes. They saved you 20 minutes. Nobody likes to wait. If you've been here with us in this study, as we we're talking about David and the life of David, you know that he got, uh, he got anointed as king when he was 12 years old. Now, we've talked through last week when we got to the point where we talked about David and Goliath. And if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to watch it. So often we talk about that as David fighting a giant, and and that is true. He does fight a giant. But I think Joe walked us through the scriptures to help us understand it really was never about the giant. It was about a giant distraction because the quest was, David, do you have faith in me? Do you trust me to lead you into this? And ultimately he did. And that's where our story picks up today. If you've got a copy of scripture, I invite you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We are moving forward in his life again as we move into this section. And I will tell you, as we move into this section, we typically teach verse by verse. You're welcome. We're not going to do that today. We have 13 chapters uh, today. 
And so what we're going to do is we're going to come through this. We're going to give the beginning and the end, and we're going to talk about skipping a stone kind of across uh, the water here on this. And we're going to look at one specific story that I think captures the whole of this for us. As we move into this, we've got a number of slides today because we're going to try to capture some things more as summary statements as we walk through this. Because what we're going to cover today is from the time that David comes home from having defeated Goliath until Saul dies, which prepares the way for David to move on to the throne. And so as we do this, you're going to hear me say this a couple of times today. We've got two internal battles going on. The first battle is Saul's battle. Saul's battle is desperately clinging to hold on to something that God has taken away from him. God has taken away the throne. He knows God's taken away the throne. And we're going to read about his desperate attempt to cling to that. Then the other internal struggle we're going to talk about is David. David is just the opposite. David is a desperate waiting for God to fulfill the promises that God has made to him. And we're going to walk through that and see that as well. So we begin in 1 Samuel chapter 18. So I invite you to follow along with me as we move into this time. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, talking about David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, let's stop a second. What's going on? I told you that it's David, but let's put the story in context. If you were here last week, you know about the story of David and Goliath. I just want to call your attention up one verse into chapter 17, verse 58. And Saul said to him, David, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. Now, in that story, when, you were, when we talked two weeks ago about David getting anointed, as David is 12 years old, he's out on the field. Samuel is showing up to anoint the next king. David's father, Jesse, doesn't even call him in. He knows one of his sons is, being, is going to be anointed king, but he doesn't even call David in. He's just out in the field. David had no aspirations beyond being faithful, which is aspiration enough. I want to be faithful to what God has called me. And so he's out there taking care of the sheep. That's his goal. That's his heart. He's doing what he's supposed to do. And all of a sudden, God brings him into the fold. And then the question was, how is he going to make it into the palace? Well, he gets presented to Saul because he can play music. And you can read through that story. But he had all of these incredible strengths. He, he was man of war. He was a man of valor. He had a good presence to him. He had a good stature to him. And it was clear that God was with him. And then all of a sudden, David gets called up to go deliver something to his brothers. His brothers are on the front line. The Philistines are mocking God and taunting God and taunting Israel. And nobody will step up until David shows up to deliver some goods to his brothers. And he hears what's going on. He says, who is this that defies our living God? He said, this can't go on. This can't go unchecked. I've got to respond to this. And so he goes out and he has this battle. Well, you get to the end of it, of the chapter, and Saul, who knows who he is, David has been in his court. He's been playing music for him. He knows all of these things about David. But you can imagine the shock. Uh, He has defeated Goliath, the giant Philistine. But when he sees him and he's coming back, you can imagine Saul's like, who are you? Who is this that just fought Goliath? And all of a sudden, there is great joy in this. Once against that backdrop, we pick up chapter, verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as David had finished saying, I'm the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. 
Isn't it interesting? Even reading that, we probably have some sense of response like, those are weird words. How is it that Jonathan's soul became knit to David's soul? I mean, he loved him. And even the wording sounds so strange to us, I think. And yet what we recognize is in our world, relationships are hard to come by. Deep, uh, intentional, personal relationships are difficult to come by. And if we're being real honest, men, it's really difficult for us. It is really difficult for us to move into these kind of intentional relationships. And that's not new information. Matter of fact, studies show that time and again. I came across two studies this last week. This one was in the National Review, and it made this comment. The friendship recession that we're going backwards in the way that we handle our relationships is particularly bad for men. The percentage of men with at least six close friends fell by half in the last 30 years, from 55% to 27%. The study also finds that the percentage of men without any close friends jumped from 3% to 15%. Men, it's getting worse. Then he goes into saying this, even men with a couple of close friends are still not in great shape. When it comes to social circles, the size of our group of friends matters. Americans with one close friend are not any less lonely or isolated than those with, without any close friends. And those with a couple of close confidants are only modestly better off. For those with three or fewer close friends, loneliness and isolation are still fairly common experiences. So when we come to this and we read about these experiences, about these relationships, our heart should be drawn to it. Oh man, how incredible is that? Now, Jonathan is the son of Saul. So we've got this scene coming back where David is coming back victorious. The army is coming back. Saul is coming back. Jonathan's coming back. Jonathan and David is talking. And Jonathan is like, man, I have a deep respect and admiration for this guy. Everybody knew that the Lord was with David. And I'm sure that Jonathan just said, hey, I'm all in. I'm with you through thick and thin. Whatever you're facing, I'm invested in you. And we're going to walk through this stuff together, whatever comes your way. Was he serious? Well, look down at the next verse. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. David, you're not going anywhere. You're staying with me. You're here with me. I need you by my side. Verse three, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now we see the intensification. It's now not just that Jonathan feels that way towards David. He is intentionally saying, hey, David, I'm with you. I want you to know I'm by your side. Come, whatever may come, I'm by your side. But look at how far he goes, verse four. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. How invested is he? See, Jonathan, who was the son of the king, would have had all of the, uh, all of the garments and everything consistent with being a person of honor, a family of nobility, the king's son. And Jonathan is looking at him and like, I'm still going to bring you into my life. You've now become my brother. You are not leaving my side. Dad has said you're staying. I want you to stay. I feel this way about you. Now you're going to dress the part. You're going to be a part of our family and whatever comes our way. And so all of a sudden he's turning it over. Would, would Saul have understood? Saul certainly would have understood. Saul knew everything that was going on in David's life. He'd already 
benefited from his music and all those other skills. He just benefited from the fact that Goliath is now dead. And you can imagine how grateful he is that David is befriending his son. If you have a child, wouldn't you love your child to be good friends with, at this level, somebody who walks with the Lord, that has a strong character, is well-spoken, and has all these other traits David has? I'm sure Saul is beside himself. Jonathan, you couldn't pick a better friend. Everything is great, right? Until it's not. Here's what happens. If you look down with me, starting in verse six. As they were coming home, you can imagine the jubilee, all the celebration. As they're coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the woman came out of the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, songs of joy with musical instruments. This is probably why you want to become a king, right? So that you can come home with all of the victory and all of the stuff. You're going to be celebrated. You're going to be adulated. Everything is going to be perfect. This is what Saul would have lived for. Saul was all about himself. And then this happens. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Any chance Saul missed that? There's no way Saul misses that. Verse 8, and Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And Saul looks around to those people who are around him and says, they've ascribed to David 10,000s and to me ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now, I don't know whether David killed 10,000s or not. Maybe he did. We don't have all that recorded. But you see what he's saying is they're celebrating him. I'm an afterthought. The joy, the celebration, all of that adulation really isn't even about me. It's about David. And he turns around and he says, David has everything. He's got the people. And their perception is he's their champion. He's the one leading. And so all that's left is for him to just have the throne. That's all that's left. And you can see how that begins to spiral him. Now, if you trace the rest of the story, and we're not going to go through all of these things because the next several chapters, we see Saul's jealousy grows. We see David, uh, Saul tries to kill him. David's able to escape the javelin. David wins another battle. Jonathan intercedes on behalf of David to his father. David escapes death in battle. Saul, he escapes Saul's spear. All of this is going. Saul sends messengers to kill him. He escapes all of that twice. And then all of a sudden, he escapes with Jonathan's help. You see, when John, Jonathan entered into that covenant with him and said, I'm all in with you on this deal, he didn't have any caveats. I'm all in unless dad tries to kill you. No, he's all in. I'm with you through thick and thin. Whatever comes your way, I'm all in. And if you're Saul, in the meantime, you've got David, this person that maybe you think is a traitor, even though he did nothing wrong. Why? Because all he did was be faithful. That's all he did. He was faithful. God kicked open doors for him. He remained faithful. He had no aspiration to the throne. God gave that to him as a result of, of rewarding his faithfulness. He did nothing wrong. But all of a sudden, the king is trying to kill him over and over and over again. And what we know is it started this nine-year chase of David fleeing and Saul chasing him. And as they went over and over and over again, it's getting more and more risky. At least it appears that way. God's already told him he's going to be on the throne. But David just has to wait. 
David just has to wait, and he begins to move. And so over the next bunches of chapters, what we see is a whole bunch of that chase. What do I mean? Well, let's look at this. I've got maps up here to help us see. He begins in Gibeah, he goes to Ramah, and then he goes back to Gibeah, and then he goes to Nob, and then he goes to Gath, and then he goes to Adullam, and then he goes to Moab, and then he goes to Masada, and then he goes to Hereth, and then he goes to Keilah, and then he goes to Ziph, and he goes to Maon, and he goes to Engedi, and then he's back to Masada, and then he goes to Ramah again, and Maon, and Carmel, and Ziph, and then Gath, and Ziklag. Now, I want to call attention to this. This is not a car. This isn't a road trip. There's no good playlist that he's listening to. This is him on foot, maybe on an animal, traveling to get away. We're going to talk about Ziglag next week, but in, the under, in trying to understand this whole, we, we're going to move past that. But what we see is nine years, nine years of him on foot fleeing everywhere Saul is chasing him. Why? Because Saul would say he's guilty of treason. Why? What did he do? He was just faithful. And what ended up happening is all of a sudden this fugitive, because Saul's trying to catch him, he's running from the law, all he did was be faithful. And the question should be on each of us, well, why are the faithful not always rewarded? And the answer is going to be this, is that God does incredible things to grow us as we wait in the wildernesses of life. And that's where we live. And that's where David finds himself. God was not out of control, wasn't not in control in this time. God is taking a boy that cared for shepherding sheep and is preparing him to shepherd his people. And that's going to come up again as we walk through this story. Because in those nine years, as he's running, he never abandons his God. Now, as we've talked before, when we talk about temptation, we've talked about an acronym before, HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And when we find ourselves hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, we will be more susceptible to temptation. Now, I would ask you, nine years of being on the run, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired, waiting, which none of us enjoys, but it's an unoccupied time other than he's fleeing for his life. Two, you can imagine he's ready to get started and get to the throne. And three, he's finding himself in a predicament where he's got to wait for an unspecified time. Lord, when? When do I get to the throne? You told me all these years ago that I was going to get there. When do I get there? And you can imagine how the impact of that is. So he finds himself in this situation where we get to the end of the story. I want to show you the end of the story, and then we're going to come back and look for something. So as we talk about Samuel and we talk about, uh, excuse me, Saul uh, and what ends up happening to him, Saul becomes a person that's incredibly uh, greedy, and his downward path begins this downward spiral. You know, rarely does our first bad decision shipwreck us, right? Is we can have one bad decision that we can find ourselves in and we can pull ourselves out of it. You know where we really get in trouble? is when we double down on our bad decision and now we have two. And then we double down and all of a sudden it's, and it's that downward spiral. You know what happened to Saul across his life? And we're not going to look at all this, but the references are up here. And if you want these, we can, we'd be happy to get you uh, these slides. But let's look at his. See, for Saul, if, his first bad decision was he got really selfish. And we're like, well, that's, I mean, that's not a terrible decision. I, too, have been selfish, right? Well, look at what happens when selfishness takes over and we don't really ever address it and pull out of the bad decision-making. So Jonathan takes it, has this victory 
Saul takes it for himself. He's being selfish. He doesn't want anybody else to have it. Well, all of a sudden, now that selfishness, now he begins to get impatient. He didn't think the priest got there fast enough. You know what? I'll take care of this myself. And now all of a sudden, disobedience begins to take on a life of its own. So now he starts blaming people. And when we start going down that downward spiral, you can imagine what happens. Now all of a sudden, we get really suspicious of everything. And now all of a sudden, we can't trust anybody because, I mean, I can't trust myself. So if I can't trust myself, why would I trust you? And now see that that spiral is getting worse and worse and worse. And so guess what happens when suspicion goes unchecked? Well, now I'm going to try to kill you because you're a threat to me and I'm suspicious of everything you're doing. Well, now fear begins to set in. And now all of a sudden, if fear sets in, what am I going to do to get out of it? Well, now I'm going to scheme because I've got to fix this. I can't trust anybody else. I can't take this to the Lord because this is my downward, my downward uh, spiral into sin. And so now I'm trying to scheme. And so I'm trying to get David killed in battle. Or if I can't do that, let me get some people on my side to try to kill him. And I'll try to bring them into the occasion. Well, well, they failed. I'm the king. Let me fix it. So I'll try to kill David again myself. And now all the begin that happens. But he can't kill him. But you know what he can do? He can go and kill the priest that he felt like he'd actually tried to help David. And so, okay, now that I've killed them, I know what it's like. Let me go try to kill him again and let me chase him into the wilderness. And when all of that fails, I'm going to go into spiritism and I will go and consult a witch or a medium. See his downward spiral? And you're like, how did you get there? I mean, how did you get there? You're Saul. It wasn't supposed to be that way, Saul. See, that spiritism part was when he finds out that he's, he knows that he's about to do battle with the Philistines, and we're going to talk about this uh, later, uh, not this week, but we're going to talk about it later, where he knows that he's against battle, and so he's calling out to God, and God's not answering him. God said, I'm not going to answer you. I'm leaving you because I need a new king. You're a terrible king, Saul. You don't represent me. I want somebody who has my heart. Matter of fact, I wanted to be your king. But the people said, no, they want a human king. And so I thought, well, I'll give them a king, but they have to have a heart after mine. Saul, that's not you. You represent me terribly. And so all of a sudden we see Saul getting a little freaked out. I don't know what's going to happen. Well, Samuel's already dead, and so he can't go to Samuel. And so what he does is he goes to a medium. He goes to somebody that can summon Samuel from the side of God. And we can say, well, why did that happen? I don't know. Does the medium have power over Samuel? Absolutely not. God chose to allow Samuel to show up when the medium called him. But Saul is so freaking out, he doesn't know what to do. And so all of a sudden, he's like, I need direction. God won't talk to me. There's, Samuel's dead. I need to talk to Samuel, even though he's dead. And so we're told that Saul goes in the middle of the night, he's in disguise, and he goes to this medium. And she says, well, who do you want to talk to? And he's like, I need to talk to Samuel. And all of a sudden, Samuel shows up. And Samuel has, I think, some righteous indignation. And it's like, what do you want from me? You know the deal. God has left you. And he's like, but I need some direction. And Samuel complies. And Samuel says this, you're going to lose this battle. You're going to lose big in this battle. And you're going to die in the battle. And I'm sure Saul says, I wish I didn't know what you had just told me. Because it's all bad news. It couldn't get any worse. How bad does Saul get? He went from being the king of God's people to consulting a witch to understand what God was going to do. See how bad that is? And so when we come back and we see in Hosea where God is speaking and God says, I gave you a king in my anger. I didn't want you to have a king. I wanted to be your king. I wanted to lead my people. You demanded a king. So I gave you a king. I relented. 
but he represented me terribly. He's guilty of attempting murder. He's guilty of murder. He's scheming. He's disobedient. He's not loyal. He consults witches. So I took him away in my wrath. Any doubt? If you or I feel like God, we talked about the law of sowing and reaping in Galatians, if we feel like God does not hold us accountable, God says, oh, I hold people accountable. You're leading my people. I will deal with you, Saul. And in my wrath, I took him away. Saul, that's why you're not king anymore. And all of a sudden, we can begin to see what happens. Well, if you turn forward in your copy of Scripture to 1 Samuel chapter 31, I'm going to share with you the end of the story, and then we're going to go back and look at one specific section of the story that I think captures the whole. 1 Samuel chapter 31, verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So exactly what Samuel had told him when the, when the medium had summoned him was true. You're going to go into battle, and it's going to be a catastrophe for your people. And so here they are. They're getting overrun. They're trying to flee. They're trying to get away. They're all getting killed. Verse 2, and the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan. David's Jonathan is dead, and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. He's now watched his boys get killed. Armies fleeing. They're getting mowed down as they flee. His three boys are dead. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. And now he's got an arrow, at least one arrow in him. Things are not going well. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest the uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. Just go ahead and put me out of my misery. In this, I do not want to be a prisoner of war. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore, Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. That's the end of Saul's story. What's the day look like? Verse 5, and when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he fell upon his own sword and died with Saul. Thus Saul died, his three sons died, his armor bearer died, and all his men on the same day together. See what that spiraling does to a person? It's all of a sudden the catastrophe that was got worse. He is all the way down, and now his life's over. His sons are over. The army's been obliterated. The Philistines have won. That's the end of his story. And that sets us up for that moment we've been waiting for since David got anointed. But what's God doing in David? I mean, it's been, by the time this happens, it will have been 18 long years. 18 long years of David waiting most of which were him in the wilderness, waiting for the moment for God to bring it about. I want to look at a story. We're going to talk through 1 Samuel chapter 24. I think this story in a lot of ways shows us the narrative of who David is and what his heart is. So where does this happen? This happens at this point in his journeys at En Gedi. This is the 12th leg of his tour of escape. So he's already into this for a long time. You can imagine his hunger, his anger, his loneliness, his tiredness, and he comes upon this moment. Chapter 24, verse 1, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David's in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now, if you've been chasing him all this time, you can imagine the joy of thinking, hey, we know where he is. We got him. 
We know right where he is. He's in Engedi. And if you're Saul, you're like, oh, this is a moment we've been waiting for. Everything is good. So what do we do? We're going after him. Verse two, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men. David and his men. David has 600 people. David has 600, kind of the ragtag group. He's taken them out. They're the people that were following him. Saul looks around and said, well, if they got 600, I want a five to one ratio for every soldier. Give me 3,000 men. We're going after him with everything we got. And by the way, we're taking the very best chosen men out of the country, and we're going all in. We're going to end this now. Verse 3, And when he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now, let's just stop a second. Now, that is a lot of humanity for us to put into the Scriptures, right? He's been on a long trip. He's been busy. He's about to go into war. And he says, you know what? I really need to go to the restroom before we go any further. So just let me, give me a moment. And if you've ever thought, I can't identify with Scripture, everybody can identify with this. And so he goes in and says, I just need to, and I'm going to tell you, the, the Hebrew text is actually a little bit more graphic when it says, and his pants and his ankles and his feet were covered for going to the bathroom, okay? So David is going to the bathroom, excuse me, Saul's going to the bathroom. And then we get this note. Now, David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Now, think with me about that moment. David and his men are hiding in a cave. Saul is coming in. I'm sure at some point they heard Saul coming in. They would have heard the 3,000 people traveling. And now all of a sudden, they're like, oh my goodness, Saul is like in the cave with us. And he doesn't know. And he's kind of in a compromised position, right? And so this is our moment. And you know what the world is always going to do? The world's going to read the tea leaves and they're going to be like, oh, this is so God. I mean, look at him. Look at him just giving him into your care. I mean, you could totally kill him. He's coming after you. David, this is your moment. How did they say it? Well, they said it like this, verse four. Here is the day which the Lord said to you, the Lord is speaking to you right now, David. Don't mess this up. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. The Lord never said that. But isn't that just like the world with their agenda to turn around and take whatever they think is a sign and like, oh, listen to what God's telling you. God's telling you, go for it, David. That is never what God is going to say. Let me tell you, God will never tell you to go commit a sin because David recognizes Saul is still on the throne. We're gonna hear more about that in a minute. But to take out a national leader is generally called an assassination. And at no point does God call David to assassinate Saul. Now, the world might look at it, and the world might say, oh, this totally makes sense, David. And David chooses to do something different. Look with me, if you would, down at, the, uh, at your copy of Scripture. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now, if you're Saul, and it's now covering his feet, and so as he's going to the restroom, the king's garment would have been ornate. There would have been a hem. It would have been, uh, it would have, uh, been fancy and uh, embroidered and extravagant. And so Saul, excuse me, David walks over and has this moment where it's like, you know what? I'm not going to kill him, but I just am going to use this to leverage that to let him know I could have killed him. And so he takes whatever he had and takes some scissors, knife, whatever, and he takes off a little piece of it. Uh, Saul is completely unaware. And then we have this moment. Remember halt, hungry, angry, lonely, tired. 
is I'm sure that David thought at some level, if I do this and show him that I could have killed him, then I can kind of control the situation. I can show what a good guy I am. I will leverage some power against him. But what David responds to in that next verse, verse 5, and afterward David heart struck him because he cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Who do I think I am that I went to the king of Israel, God's anointed, and I cut off part of his robe? That is an act of treason. That is the first step of a coup. That is not appropriate. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. He is my ruler. He is the one. He's still got a heart of submission. The Lord's anointed. God still has him on the throne. This isn't my, my battle to put out my hand against him seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. He said, it was never my battle. It was, this has never been my battle. This is the Lord's battle. My battle is can I be faithful today in doing what the Lord calls me to do? Whether I'm in a wilderness, whether I'm in the, thro- in the palace, it doesn't matter. My calling is to be faithful at every step of the way. And whatever doors the Lord kicks open, he kicks open. And if he kicks a door open for me because of my faithfulness and he calls me to walk through it, then I'm gonna walk through it. But Saul going to the bathroom isn't the Lord kicking open a door for me. Matter of fact, he's still the king. He's still the Lord's anointed. This is still his role. Who do I think I am that I am cutting off the hem of his garment? That's treason. And David recognizes it. And so all of a sudden, verse 7, so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Isn't it interesting that in that moment, what we see is that whole group is like, God's telling you to kill him. David says, I'm just going to go cut a little piece off of the hem of his garment. And then he walks away with that moment where he goes, oh my, what did I do? He's still the Lord's anointed. That's out of bounds. I've got no right to do that. And so in that moment, as he goes back, he confesses. And then his men are like, you can imagine what his 600 men are, that one, they're looking at 3,000 men. We're outnumbered greatly. This was your chance. Let's just end this, David. And David's like, nope, this isn't right. This is wrong because we don't kick open our own doors. We allow the Lord to do that. And right now, that's what you're encouraging me to do. And what we're told is, what's the impact of one? If you've ever thought, man, there's a ground swelling around me. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to stumble into that sin or that behavior. But you know what? Everybody was coming at me in that. I mean, what can one person do? You know what one person can do? So David persuaded his men, those 600 men, looking across a group of 3,000 of Israel's best, he persuades them with, no, 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 this is not the way. And David just stood firm, and he impacted all 600 of his men. And as a result of that, and Saul rose up, left the cave, and went on his way. And I'm sure you're like, oh, man, we missed our opening. We missed our opportunity. No. What did David know? God's already anointed him. God already said you're going to be king. That's going to happen. So it's David just trusting. Remember, this is Saul desperately clinging to something the Lord has taken, and it's Saul desperately waiting on the Lord to bring about what he had promised over and over and over again. And that's the story as it goes on. And we see all these things move forward in this story. And ultimately, Saul comes out, David's holding it, and he says, look, Look what I got, but it wasn't my place, so I didn't. And Saul turns and looks at him and says, you're more righteous than me. 
And then look at what we find out if you drop down to verse 20. This is Saul speaking back. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. You know what we didn't know? We didn't know that Saul understood that David was the next king. Until right there. It's not just that he's trying to kill David. It's not even that he feels like David's a threat to the throne. It's not even as though he's like, it's a popularity contest and this could give an uprising. None of those. See, now what we understand is Saul is trying to kill the Lord's anointed. He's trying to kill the one that, he, that when the Lord said, I need a man after my own heart on that throne, you're not it. The Spirit's going to depart from you. You're losing the kingdom. I'm bringing in somebody. He knew that that was David. And he's still trying to thwart God's plan. He's trying to kill the Lord's anointed. And that's never going to happen. And then, if you can imagine, there was a, a, a practice in that day that was common, is if somebody was the ruling uh, monarch, that if they had family members and the line, was gonna, the, uh, the, uh, the line to the throne was going to move off that biological line, is that the new person would kill everybody in that line so nobody had a legitimate claim to the throne. And that's what's happening here. Saul is going to be handing it off to David. And so we get this line in verse... 21, David, swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Don't kill all of my relatives, David. And he says, David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. You know, the thing is, Jonathan had asked David the same thing. Jonathan knew that that David was going to be the king. In chapter 20, he said, hey, please don't kill off our family line. And you're going to hear about that story later on because something really unique happens. And so David says, I'm not, that's not me. I'm not a man to come about and take life. I'm not trying to kick doors open and I'm not putting down doorstops to keep the Lord from moving the door. He just says, I'm just gonna do what God calls me to do and I'm not gonna kill your family line. That's not who I am. I have a heart after the Lord and everything changes in that moment. See, when we look at this story, all of a sudden we see several things, right? Saul fueled by an evil spirit. David's fueled by the Holy Spirit. Saul is clinging desperately to what the Lord has taken. David is desperately waiting on what the Lord was telling him was going to happen. And so I met with this idea, how do we wait? Because nobody likes waiting. Nobody likes waiting. So how do we do that? I'm going to offer you three guide rails that I think are there in Scripture for us. How do we wait? I think there's three. One is wait with perspective. We've got to wait with perspective. We have to be aware of what's going on, and we've got to think deeper about things than you and I typically would ever think about things. So Romans 5 talks with us about it when it says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, okay? So we're justified by faith. We've talked to that a lot with Galatians. So now we're at peace with God, and it's through him that we've obtained access by faith into this grace which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of glory of God. That's where we rejoice, okay? How? Because he says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And you and I have to think, wait a minute. I don't like I don't like being in the wilderness. I don't like being on the run for nine years. I don't like people pursuing me. And if you're David, you're like, what did I do wrong? And the answer is nothing. You did nothing wrong. But God's growing you. So the perspective that I think God wants us to have, the Scripture would tell us to have, is this. We can rejoice in sufferings because there's more going on than what we're aware of. 
way more going on than what we're aware of. I'm like, I'm just suffering. And God says, what you can't see is that it's through your suffering that I'm going to produce endurance in you. And it's through your endurance that I'm going to produce character in you. And because of that character's there, then it's going to produce hope. And here's what you need to know. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. We got to change our perspective. We just think all that's going on is I'm suffering and I don't understand why. And God wants to say, oh, no, 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 you're missing it. You're missing what I'm doing in you. I'm creating endurance. I'm creating character. I'm growing you. I'm molding you. I'm shaping you. And I'm putting a hope into your soul. Man, give me some of that. I don't want the rejoice. excuse me, I don't want the suffering unless there's something on the other side of it that's worth having, right? And now all of a sudden, we endure that because of what we're going to get. The Lord says, I got some big plans for you. I'm doing great thing. We got to wait with perspective. We've got to have that perspective. God's doing something because then we get to wait with humility. We got to wait with humility. And this is hard for us because we want to know everything and we probably think we know everything. And we probably think at times we know more than God. But reality is we don't. Romans, Paul writes about, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. We just can't grasp it. And what we want to do is say, I want to make sense of this. I want to understand what's going on. And God says, you can't. You can't. You can't make sense of it because my ways are loftier than your ways. And he's actually referring to Job here when he says where Job kind of got his role mixed up with God and thought, I'm pretty good and I don't deserve this. And he gets mad at God. And then Job responds, God responds to Job and says, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation there? Tell me, you think you have understanding about how I work? Ah, who determines the measurements? Surely you know, Job, you think you have all the answers? Or who stretched the line upon it? See, we not only begin with We've got to wait with a level of perspective. God's doing something. I know he's doing something. So I can rejoice. Regardless of the path, I can rejoice because I know he's at work. He's doing something in me. And I've got to have a level of humility that says, I I can't grasp it. I don't know what he's doing, but he's God. I'm not. And I trust him and that's enough. Because all of a sudden that gets us to we can wait with hope. And see, hope becomes this thing that in Scripture, hope is, it doesn't speak of uncertainty. I hope it doesn't rain today or I hope it does. No, that's the way we use hope. When the Bible uses the word hope, hope is something that is definitely going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. And so that hope we see in Romans 8, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what he sees. But if we hope in what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see our three guide rails? We'll wait with perspective. Yes, I'm suffering, but God's doing something and it's going to be worth it in the end. I don't understand. That's the wait with humility because I can't even grasp what God's doing. But you know what? I know he's doing something. That's who he is. That's what he does. And I don't grasp it. I can't figure it out because I can't understand the mind of God. And so I'm just going to wait with humility. God, I don't understand, but I'm waiting with hope because I know the end of the story. And we live in those wilderness experiences with everybody chasing us, and it feels like, God, where are we? And I'm like, I'm hungry, I'm angry, I'm lonely, I'm tired. And then we start taking matters into our own hands, and God says, no. You wait on me, and you honor me, and let me take care of you. That's the calling. God grows us as we wait. God grows us in the wilderness, and we learn a hope that gives us a yearning beyond this world. 
You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. You can also hear each week's message Sunday mornings on 89.5 FM KMOC. Listen to our podcast online anytime at gracechurch.com or find us in the Apple Podcast directory. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.